Hey, deserving listeners, just me today. I thought I would answer some of your questions. This first question is, why would someone have deep insecurity about being lovable, even though they had good enough parents and experienced unconditional love? End of question. Yeah, this is a, a interesting question, relevant, uh, particularly to this podcast, since I am so often connecting relationship issues, attachment issues, emotional issues as an adult to issues with parenting early in life, particularly early in life. Uh, And some people will say, well, I had a pretty good childhood, and yet I have deep insecurities as an adult, or research shows that sometimes that happens. Well, uh, there's a number of different possibilities, and it's impossible to know. It's all just conceptualization. We don't have the science yet, and I don't foresee it happening in my lifetime to be able to measure these things because there's too many things at play. There are multiple things happening to children and adults that can impact their psychology. There are multiple ways to interpret it. Our brains are very uh, odd uh, organs that don't always um, behave in ways that are predictable. So we just don't have the ability to know for sure. But conceptualization-wise, here's what I will often um, look towards as hypotheses. One is that, yeah, so you'll have an adult and they'll be like, I have deep insecurities. I think I have preoccupied attachment and my parents were really great. I didn't, I didn't have any traumas. Everything was fine. There are a number of possibilities that I've often uh, investigated and found to seem to be a good candidate as to why that would happen. One is that for some people, when they look back on their childhood, they see parents and family life that was pretty good, but it's hard to detect what was actually going wrong in the parenting. For example, you can have, a, and I've treated clients like this, um, you can have a parenting style that is very loving and very uh, secure and non-chaotic and non-abusive, where the child throughout their life knows absolutely my parents love me. My parents will always be there for me. My parents are not um, against me or against each other. They have a lot of stability. And yet the parents can be subtly emotionally neglectful of the children such that the child will develop attachment insecurities later in life, often avoiding attachment and anxiety. Hard hard to say. Uh, it, It varies. But it's a mild emotional neglect that is throughout one's life, particularly when you're young and you don't really remember those years very well anyway, that results in that. So you can have a very loving, very secure, very calm, non-abusive family, and yet have subtle and pervasive emotional abuse that has happened or emotional neglect, I should say. And the way that'll look sometimes is just parents that, when they notice you, they love you, but they just don't really notice you very, very often. And as a young person, you just don't uh, know that you're supposed to be noticed more often than that. Because remember that attachment attunement requires two things. One, you have to notice, and then two, you have to react well and in a healthy way. But if, if you don't notice, then you won't react well enough very often. Anyway, so so that's sometimes that I've found uh, to be the case when people say that, you know, I had a pretty good childhood and yet I still have a lot of issues. The other uh, possibilities is that it was bullying or other traumas that happened with peers growing up. 
you can have a very loving family but be treated very poorly at school by teachers or other kids and have tremendous uh, emotional issues later on in life as a result of that. Another thing that I've seen, I've treated people with this, is that they have a pretty good family, but they go through a really um, difficult health problem when they're young. Because imagine you're three years old and you're in and out of the hospital going into surgeries and it's terrifying. You have all these needles and strangers looking at you and all these tubes coming in and out of you. And your parents love you, love you, love you. And you know that. But the trauma of having all those health problems can absolutely cause ongoing issues. Absolutely. And we don't usually look to that because uh, what are we supposed to do, right? But for some situations, there's no way around the children not being traumatized, at least some extent. Because, you know, you can be there, you'd be like, hey, kid, you know, I'm right here with you. I'm right here by your side. You could be attuned to their feelings. You could listen to them. You could reassure them. You could do everything possible. But it's a health problem early in life for a child can be traumatic regardless of what you do. Another thing that can happen is bad breakups. You can have a wonderful life and have a lot of people there in your corner. And then at the age of 16, you have a really intense relationship and it's really hard for you and you break up. Now, of course, if you have uh, attachment insecurity, you're going to deal uh, with that breakup in more um, difficult ways. But, you know, let's say you're securely attached and you go through a really, really bad breakup and, um, you know, circumstantial or it's just a bad person that you're involved with. That can absolutely cause ongoing issues. So that's my answer. To that There are other possibilities, but those are usually the things that I look for. All right, this next question is, how does one begin to try and understand their dreams? How does one begin to try to understand their dreams? Okay, well, it's complicated, but let me, and I've done whole episodes on this, but in a nutshell, here's my model of dream analysis, and here are my assumptions within my model. Uh, Dreams can open new areas for therapy. I have found that to be true. When we analyze dreams, it can open up, uh, it can be sort of like the the beginning of a topic in therapy with a client that can be very fruitful. Also, dream analysis is useful for insight and wisdom, meaning that when we analyze our dreams, it really helps us with our insight and our wisdom. Um, and I'll get more into that later. Dreams involve the unconscious psyche. Not everyone believes that, um, but it is within this model. And there's no way to scientifically prove this, but I found that to be a helpful way of looking at things. Another is that dreams sometimes involve countertransference and countertransference uh, and countertransference. For example, the therapist and client might um, find uh, it fruitful to analyze their both their dreams. So the client analyzes their dreams and the therapist analyzes their dreams and um, talk about how they might be telling the two of them about their relationship and how. Um, that might be utilized to help the client. Uh, Another uh, element within my model, which is very uh, common uh, assumption within scientists regarding dreams, is that our real experiences influence our dreams, meaning that during the day we will have something happen to us and our dream will reflect that somehow. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why that is, Um, Some would say that it's memory consolidation, which seems quite likely. Another is that 
it is us trying to practice so that we might be better at the task in the future. You know, we get into a conflict with someone at work, and then we have a dream where we are, um, I don't know, screaming at a turtle or something. And this is our brain's weird way of trying to learn how to assert oneself or something like that. Now, of course, the unconscious isn't always fantastic at learning exactly what to practice, but that's the idea. The other assumption within my model is that symbolism is crap 99.9% of the time. When you look up dream analysis on the internet, the vast majority of websites and books that you'll find are like, if you dream that you fly, it means this. It's crap. I've never found any of that stuff to make any sense. Certainly, it might coincide with you. And certainly, you can have this effect similar to other kinds of practices um, that I won't go into. Some of you might hate me for identifying them as such that when you just suggest something to someone, they will say it's true. You know, like uh, someone says, oh, I dreamt I was flying. And then you tell them, well, you know what flying dreams mean? And the person's like, what? What do they mean? And you say, well, you know, flying dreams mean that there's something in your life right now that you want to that you want to fly away from, you want freedom from. And then the person is like, oh my God, yeah, I want freedom from X, Y, and Z. You know, you ask anyone on the street if there's something in their life right now that's kind of driving them nuts and they they want freedom from that. Everyone has something. So when someone has a dream about flying and then this pseudo expert says, oh, you know, it's because you, you want freedom from something. And then the uneducated dreamer says, oh, you know, that must be true uh, because it feels like science because it's, con- you know, it's confirmation bias essentially. And, and uh, uh, so these kinds of uh, exercises I find to be not useful at all to me. What I do with my clients and with myself, incidentally, is that I look, to- I ask them what, so in a nutshell, dream analysis to me when I've done it with clients is, I ask them a lot of questions. I never provide any answers. And I've demonstrated this for my students as well. Uh, in class, sometimes I like to debunk a lot of this crap, and this is a pretty short thing that I can do. A, a student will tell me a dream, and I will just ask a series of questions. I'll say, like, okay, so you dreamt about an alligator. What does an alligator mean to you? And they'd be like, oh, well, alligators mean this. Thing. And I say, <clears throat> you know, how did you, you were in the dream, how did you feel? When you were in the dream, what kind of emotions were you having? Well, I was I was scared. Okay, um, have you been feeling scared lately? And they'll be like, Well, yeah, because of this and that. And so I just ask a bunch of questions, and then the client tells me what the what the symbolism means to them because it's usually quite particular. If someone dreams about flying, uh, and people often do dream about flying. Almost everyone I've talked to has a different answer as to why they probably were dreaming about flying. For some, it's like they want to get out of their marriage. For some, they just like to fly. <laughs> For some, flying is is anxiety provoking. You know, flying in a dream isn't always a good thing. Some people will fly in a dream and it's terrifying. And in fact, for me, I I rarely dream I'm flying, but sometimes I dream that I can jump really high. And on the way up, it's I'm elated. I'm like, yee wee, this is fun. But then I realize at the apex of my parabola that I have to come down. <laughs> and the fact that I can jump like 35 feet high is fun on the way up and terrifying on the way down. So for me, flying is, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not all a wonderful, you know, sort of thing. So, um, so anyway, yeah, symbolism is crap. And all those books and all the Internet silliness uh, makes no sense to me anyway. 
Um, uh, another assumption that I have is that many dreams have deeper meanings to the dreamer once we investigate it. I, I, without fail, whenever I talk about dreams with, with people and I analyze their dreams, after the exercise, if I ask, you know, I, I might say something like, so when, you, when we started this analysis, did you expect to be where you are now? And almost everyone says, no, I, I just thought the dream was kind of weird. But the more you asked me questions about it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, wow, this dream actually had a lot of importance in my life right now. I think this dream was really trying to tell me something about what my, what my emotions are recently. And that's where the magic of dream analysis comes in, really, is that the, for the people, whether it is scientific or not, and this, this is another uh, part of my dream analysis model, is that I hold out for the possibility that the dream analysis is meaningless and is a complete, uh, silly, non-scientific um, exercise that's based on nothing. But it's an opportunity for clients to learn about themselves. So let me so let me give an example. So let's say someone let's say someone has a dream and the dream has nothing to do with their life. You know, it's it's just a complete random static that's happening in the brain while they're while they're sleeping. They come into my office and I say, let's analyze your dream. And then they tell me all the different elements of the dream. And then I ask them all my various questions. And at the end of that problem, uh, process, they determine for themselves, or we collaboratively determine, that the dream has to do with the fact that they feel as though they're not spending enough time for themselves. They're spending, them, they're, they're spending way too much time pleasing other people. Okay. So this is the conclusion of the dream. And it's really meaningful to the client because they're like, wow, I guess my unconscious is really trying to tell me something that this isn't just uh, something that I, I mildly wish for myself. Like there's a deep part of my unconscious that's really telling me, hey, you're, you're too much of a pleaser. This is not okay. You know, this isn't good for you. We have other needs. Okay. So again, the dream meant nothing. The dream wasn't connected to that at all, but the client concluded through our conversation that it was related to assertiveness and um, having boundaries with other people. And then the and the client, because the client believes the dream has to do with that, it motivates them to work on not being such a people pleaser anymore. And as a therapist, I observe this process and I think, well, that's a pretty good goal for the client to have anyway, regardless of whether or not the dream was connected to that or not. So in my model, I hold out for that possibility that as we're analyzing a dream, we're just making stuff up, and, and but it feels real. And as long as it's therapeutic to the client, then I don't really care because I can't know. I can't know if analyzing the dream is an exercise of silliness or an exercise of validity. And, but it doesn't matter to me because uh, my primary goal with the exercise is to help the client as it usually does. Um, another uh, assumption in my dream analysis is that all elements in the dream are a part of the self. And I will often ask clients around this. I'll be like, okay, you dreamt about the alligator. So, you know, the, I was dreaming, I was walking on the street and this alligator came out and bit me. Okay. So then I say, how do you feel? Oh, I felt scared. It hurt. Okay. Now, the other thing, this is what I say to the, to the client. I say, the other thing about dreams is that you invented the alligator. You understand? The alligator wasn't outside of you. The alligator was inside of you. So the alligator is actually a part of you. You were just identifying with the 
with the you character and in the dream, but you're not identifying with the alligator, what part of you is the alligator? Because, and this often will blow people's minds. <laughs> They're just like, oh, I never thought about that. I'm like, yeah, the alligator, you are the alligator. You made the alligator bite you. <laughs> you, a part of your unconscious or whatever your dream process invented an alligator to bite the you protagonist. And they'll be like, yeah, I guess that's true. And I'll be like, okay, so w- what part of you is represented in that alligator? You know, it's just the interesting, you know, why does the alligator, why do you want to bite yourself is kind of the, the question. Another assumption, which is based on Freudian dream analysis, which is that dreams are, dreams often express our wishes and our fears. And, you know, I don't need to go into further detail on that, but that's pretty apparent, I think. Uh, dreams often involve our primary needs, like security, fear of annihilation, this kind of thing. Dreams are sometimes rehearsals for things that we need to rehearse. Like I was saying earlier, if you need to rehearse for an argument, sometimes our dreams will help us out with that. But sometimes it's a crude uh, practice, if you will. Like if you um, are supposed to protect yourself from a coworker who is mean to you, you might dream about an alligator trying to bite you and you are practicing how to run away from an alligator because that's the way it feels to you as your coworker is threatening you or talking crap about you behind your back. The, the sort of primal uh, feeling is you want to run away. You want to run away from that threat. Uh, whether or not that actually helps you in the next day at work is debatable, right? But analyzing it might help. Dreams are also for organizing memories, which again seems to be the prevailing science. Dreams also help us learn by organizing our memories, which is also the prevailing science. And, and the strong, you know, one of the um, research areas that they will uh, use to demonstrate this is that when you allow people to dream more or you uh, help people to dream about a particular thing, they are better at that task the next day. Another assumption in my model is that some dreams are totally just random brain farts, essentially. Sometimes the brain just decides to dream just weird stuff and there's really no explanation for it. Um, So, yeah... Uh, getting into my technique, I basically just told, again, I never interpret people's dreams. I never say, oh, uh, that means that. I, I, sometimes I'll, if I find that we're sort of stuck, I might say like, well, I don't know. I, I get the vibe from your dream of danger. You know, they're like, oh, I was on an airplane and it was kind of windy and I was like flirting with this guy and, you know, like uh, Bob Barker was there doing prices Right. And uh, we don't really get anywhere. And I, I start picking up countertransference wise on the dream a little bit. And I might if we if we get to a barrier and I feel like I need to prime the pump a little bit, I might say something like, well, I don't know if this has anything to do with your dream. But as you were telling the dream, I was feeling danger. But I don't know if that's just me making stuff up. You know, I, I usually am extremely tentative for good reasons. And sometimes clients will be like, eh, no, I don't really feel that. But other clients will be like, huh, yeah, I guess there was kind of a dangerous element to it now that you mention it. And I have to be careful with that, of course, because I could just be implanting ideas into what they were, what they were saying. But anyway, so yeah, there's all these various questions that I would, that I would ask. And again, um, uh, usually it helps 
and it can provide a lot of meaning uh, to the direction of therapy. Um, but I never just use dream analysis as a thing in and of itself. I never be like, okay, dream analysis done, boom. What I do is I use it as a jumping off point to emphasize or to explore areas in their real life, if that makes any sense, right? So your question was, how does one begin to understand their dreams? There's a lot of science on this, and we're really in the beginning of that exploration. But in terms of how I understand dreams, that's how I understand them. All right, this next question is, do we love others because of the things they do for us or because of who they are? Okay, so if I understand this question correctly, it's a question of, it's sort of like the question, does my dog like me or does my dog only pretend to like me because I give my dog food? Uh, Another, you know, do, do, do people really like me for who I am or do they just like me because of what I can provide them? Maybe even I can provide them attachment security, that kind of thing. Well, it's a very interesting philosophical question that we can't really answer for sure. And there's evidence for both. And it's also kind of a philosophical question because if, say, for example, me and my wife, do I, do I really love her for who she is or do I love her because of things that she gives me? Well, that's kind of the same thing. Uh, even if... Even if you say love David Bowie and David Bowie, you're not in a relationship with David Bowie, right? You're just like, I just love David Bowie, but David Bowie doesn't really give me anything. Well, David Bowie does give you things, gives you art, gives you something to think about. And that's a very valuable thing. But so whenever we're in a relationship with someone that we like in particular, there is an exchange of things in a sense. There's an exchange of attachment. There's an exchange of security. There's an exchange of, of attention. And do I love my wife totally unconditionally for just who she is? Or do I love her entirely because of, quote unquote, things that she gives me? And even the question, do I love her independent of the things that she gives me? There's no way for me to know that because she would have to not exist or at least be in relationship with me in order for me to know my feelings towards her independent of what she, quote unquote, gives me. You know what I mean? So, um, and uh, I, I, when I read this question earlier, I, I thought of an, a, another angle of looking at this, which is that abused ch- and neglected children who are being treated very terribly by their parents, sometimes completely abandoned by their parents, those children will still often love and long for their parents. So even though the parents are um, not giving the children and anything, but might even be really harming the children... We have an innate need to attach to our uh, people that are close to us, you know, people identified as our parents or people identified as our attachment figures, people that we've identified as our attachment figures, regardless of what they give to us, regardless of how they treat us, right? So we seem to have a, an innate drive to uh, like people and want to be with them independent of how they treat us just because of the role that they play in our evolutionary uh, drives, you know, (laughs) that was a weird way of putting it. I think we, I think we evolved a drive, which I think seems pretty clear from the evidence to uh, uh, find our kin, find our family, find our people 
and latch onto them because it's within our interest to latch on to people close to us because they can support us, they can be there for us, they can alert us to, to predators, this kind of thing, regardless of how they, they are actually treating us. Uh, I think that there's an element of that. All right, this next question is, the, uh, they just say, the psychology of social media influencers, how fake the whole industry is, how it's the, how it's the most important, how it's the most popular dream job among kids, how it's promoting feelings of isolation among individuals. End of question. It's not really a question. It's just a kind of a topic. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot I can say about social media influencers. One angle of looking at it is that it's just another form of materialism that's been uh, going on for a long... Materialism has been going along strong in the United States for a long time. And it's just getting worse and worse over time. And so this is just the next iteration of it, given that we have social media. And it's just this idea of, you know, buy this thing or be like me and you will be happy and you'll be like me. And look at me. I'm awesome. And it's completely false. And all of us understand that. Uh, hope, hopefully all of us understand. Before there was social media, you had commercials. You had O.J. Simpson um, using Avis car or Hertz rent a car or whatever. I think it was Hertz. And why do we care that O.J. Simpson is using a particular rental car? <clears throat> well, because back then, O.J. Simpson was <clears throat> completely idolized, and so people uh, wanted to be like him. And if he's using Hertz rent-a-car, then I want to be like him because he seems happy and athletic and fun, and everyone loves him. And so if I use that rent-a-car service, then I'll be like him. So, you know, uh, we've had influencers since we've had the ability to influence, I suppose. Um, I, I remember re hearing a, a history podcast, uh, Dan Carlin's history, hardcore history podcast. He was talking about how Julius Caesar, back in the ancient Rome days, wore his uh, toga in a certain sexy way. And he was an influencer on other young men who would also start wearing their toga in a sexual way and also would have tassels, I think was another aspect. I don't quote me on that, but so as long as we've had famous people or highly regarded people and, and materialism and power and economics, we've had social, we've had media, we've had social influencers, whether it's social media influencers or not. Um, so on one hand, I, I don't think we need to panic when we have social media influencers. There's 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 some level of panic of just like oh my god, society's going down the tubes because of social media influencers, which um, I just I just don't agree with. I, I think we need to look at materialism. <laughs> I think that might actually cause the downfall of our, or at least cause a lot of problems. In our, it already is causing problems in our society. Uh, isolation, as you mentioned, you're saying you know how it's promoting feelings of isolation. Yeah, this idea of, well, getting to, so, you know, focusing on social media influencers. Well, just, again, the, the broader topic of materialism and social influence, regardless of whether it's social media or commercials or whatever, it is this idea that it's promoting this idea that if it's, it's, it's promoting the idea that there's something wrong with you. Most advertisements have an element that is trying, whether consciously or not, to say, you are wrong, and I have the way to make you right. So 
you are you don't look good enough. You don't have the right shoes. You don't have the right makeup. You don't have you don't listen to the right music. You don't go to the right vacation spots. You don't have the right friends. You're ugly. You're fat. You're poor. Your skin color isn't right. Your you know everything advertisement and and why did they do that? Well, of course, because they have the answer. Your breath, you know, the whole breath, bad breath industry in the United States was essentially created by advertisements. Don't quote me on this exactly, but um, I'm 95% sure that this is at least a crude description of the creation of the breath industry in the United States. Around the world, the concern about bad breath varies. There are are cultures around the world where they they don't care from, from what I understand. Um, in Seattle, the culture here is such that uh, I am terrified of having my breath be bad in all situations around my friends, my family, around my dogs. <laughs> when my dogs have bad breath, I notice it. Usually it means they have an infection. You got to take them to the vet. But um, uh, uh, there's a, 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 an, an analysis of our society, a very good possibility that the reason why I care about bad breath and other people around the world don't is because of social uh, influencing by uh, advertisers who shame bad breath. And this goes back to like the 40s and 50s and 60s um, and will uh, say, if you can smell your breath, if you smell like a human being, essentially, then you are disgusting. And look, we have this, we have Listerine or we have this breath mint or something. And there's countless examples like this. I mean, there's so many things in the beauty industry that are along these lines. Your eyebrows look disgusting. Your eyelashes don't, aren't long enough. Your, your eyes, your, your skin has, you can see your pores, you know, again, I always just think, um, so you're saying I look like a human being. (laughs) I'm a human being. And thus, you're disgusting, but I have this solution to the, and you have to buy my thing, which of course, you know, puts my kids through college when you buy my thing. So yeah, social media influencers are participating uh, often, not always in this process, which is causing people to feel terrible about themselves and to feel even more isolated, which, which creates more of a need to fantasize and idealize these social media influencers because when we look at them, we feel like we're a part of them. That's the fantasy is I am following, you know, I don't know, one of the Kardashians and I feel like I'm with, it's, it's a fantasy of, I feel like I am them or I am in their circle or something. Not everyone uses social media in this way, but I think that it, that is part of its appeal and I can forget about, uh, so, so not only does the, you know, social influencing materialism complex cause you to feel like there's something wrong with you, but then they provide you with these fantasy ideals that you pay attention to, to make you forget about the fact that you feel like you're a terrible person and there's something wrong with you. And then those media influencers will tell you here is, here are more things that are wrong with you. And here are more products that will make you right. It's just, it's a cyclical, cyclical thing, but it's been happening way before the internet. And it's been a problem way before the internet. You say that it is the most popular dream job among kids these days, which uh, I, you know I don't I don't know if that's exactly true. I I know that it is a popular job. I know a lot of teenagers think about being a social media influencer or they think about being a YouTuber. 
And I think that it's a product. I think part of that is good because it is a possible job for people. And part of it is a little short-sighted. You know, kids will fantasize about jobs that they know about, right? That's why kids, you know, four-year-olds fantasize about being a fire per, firefighter because they often – it's easy to understand what a firefighter is. A four-year-old can understand what a firefighter does. Whereas um, being an office manager at a startup company isn't very conceivable, even to a teenager. And so teenagers and kids will fantasize about jobs that they see, like being in the NBA or being a pop star or a politician or a lawyer. You'll hear a lot of uh, kids because there's a lot of lawyers in movies, you know, or being an actor. Right. So there's a lot of that that's happening, which I think is on one hand, okay. But I definitely do think that kids need a lot more education. And I know some schools are doing a better job than others of this is what a career looks like. This is how you find a career that fits with you. This is how you develop a career. This is how you uh, network within this area so that you can have the career that you want. I, for me, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I feel like no one was telling me this. Uh, I remember there were occasional conversations about this, but I, I never, it never really got under my skin. Uh, it wasn't until much later, probably like midway through my career as a therapist and a professor, that I was like, huh, there's a lot of things about career that you have to be really good at in order to harness a career. So for that reason, I think um, a lot of kids, they just fantasize about what's, what they know and what seems kind of cool. And, you know, being a social media influencer or a YouTuber is something that they fantasize about. Do I think that in 20 years, all kids today are going to be still pursuing their uh, career of social media influencer? No, <laughs> you know, uh, every generation has its silly fantasy. And then once you get into your twenties, you hit reality and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I, uh, that's not going to work out. Um, you know, for me, I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> I wanted to be a, a professional musician. And it wasn't until I was probably, I don't know, like 23 before I, you know, through experience, I was just, I just realized that mm, uh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm not that talented. And even if I did, because I actually did meet some rock stars and, and I talked about what their lifestyle was actually like and how much money they were making. And I was like, that doesn't actually sound that appealing. It sounds kind of miserable anyway. But yeah. All right. Let's take a break. We get back more questions. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. 
All right, we're back from the break. So I have uh, one more thing to say about social media influencers in that this is just anecdotal. I don't have any research, but I have seen that most people who rail against social media influencers are usually men who just kind of have a problem with younger women having power or younger women just being themselves or something. I don't know if that's true. And, you know, let me know if, if, if you find this to be true as well. But I find that the people who are really upset, you know, the people who just talk about influencers frequently or enough for it to uh, be noticeable are, are usually men. And uh, that raises a red flag for me in terms of the current, shall we say, backlash against influencers. And even the word influencer is sort of a bad word these days, right? You could call me an influencer. You could call me a social media influencer. I, I don't think I'm quintessential. Uh, you know, I think the quintessential one is someone that's on Instagram and they're traveling and they're uh, doing all these kind of glamour shots and they will promote a restaurant or uh, a, a makeup line or something uh, sort of uh, naturally through their social media posts. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm a social media influencer. I, I'm i on social media. YouTube is considered a social media to some extent. And I have ads. <laughs> you probably just listened to an ad uh, during the break if you're not a patron. So... <clears throat> um, is there is there something wrong with me? It, is my podcast bad for society? Uh, I would like to think not. <laughs> so it, I think it's uh, a little. Um, we, have, we I think we just have to be careful when we're uh, lumping an entire group of people and stereotyping them because I think the the common stereotype is a vapid, young, beautiful, thin woman who is narcissistic and is this social media influencer and she doesn't care about anyone else and she you know is really quite quite callous about everything and you know i just don't know if that uh, stereotype actually exists and i think part of the backlash is uh, sexism seeing women have power within certain feminine cultural worlds and men don't understand it or they don't like it, that there's something about it that just bothers them and they will judge it from their position of patriarchy. Uh, the other thing I think is is jealousy, honestly. I, I think that there is some amount of envy that people will have towards people who are rich and famous and powerful and they will look for any kind of um, <clears throat> hook to hang their envy on and their their anger and their um, disappointment in them somehow. And so you'll you just hear this, you know, oh, social media influencers, they're so empty and vapid. They, they're, uh, they're ruining our society. And, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe they are ruining our society, but I, I just don't think that that's likely to happen. Is materialism ruining our society? Yeah. But social media influencers are a tiny, tiny part of the material materialism that has been slowly gaining mountains and mountains of influence in our society over the past 200 years. All right. This next person asked, uh, dating in the era of dating apps. So it's just a topic. So they wanted me to talk about dating in the era of dating apps. 
I've talked about it before, and there's a lot of research on this. There's a lot of things to say. But in brief, I believe, and I've been saying this for a long time, that dating currently is different and yet the same. It's the same in that it's still hard to find your soulmate. It's not like dating apps have necessarily changed that. You still have to wade through a lot of duds before you find the one, whether before dating apps and after dating apps. There's still a lot of rejection and demoralization. So there's nothing new there. I, I, whenever I hear younger people talking about, oh, it's so different now with dating apps, and, and then I hear them describe what they're experiencing, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you realize that all those problems are present <laughs> when before they had the internet, uh, uh, you know, hard it wasn't like it was easy to find your soulmate before there were dating apps you know because because a lot of the complaints people will say about dating apps is hookup culture and uh, people will just consider dates to be kind of disposable and certainly that's possible but that, that isn't my experience i find that most people you know they're looking for someone that is compatible with them someone that they can grow old with and sometimes they just don't like you and i think that it's hard for people to accept that and it's easy to blame dating apps or feminism or some other kind of recent cultural phenomenon instead of just being like, you know what? I just think that person just wasn't into me. Um, so I hear a lot of people blaming dating apps for things that I think are just kind of normal dating experiences, but it is different. Dating apps absolutely do provide uh, some pretty major differences. For example, uh, we have a psychological phenomenon that we understand when we observe humans that when you give humans too many choices or many choices, it can lead to feeling dissatisfied with one's choice. There's a, there's a ton of research on this that uh, the example that's often given by the researchers is when you go into to buy a pair of jeans and there are two different styles. So you go into the uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> the uh, dressing room. And you try on both of the v available choices and you just choose the best one. And you walk out of the store and you say, you know what? I think I'm pretty satisfied with that choice. Then you give the next person or uh, 30 choices of jeans. And it's actually uh, probably really difficult to try on all 30. But even if you did try on all 30, different pairs of jeans, it's hard to know which one is the best because some of them are really close to being the best. Well, but they have to make a choice, so they make a choice and they walk out. So most people would say, well, the person that has 30 choices is happier than the person who had two choices because more choices is better, right? That's how materialism works. You know, you need more choices. But actually, when you measure people's satisfaction with their choice, they will the, the the person with two choices is much happier than the person with 30 choices. And how? why would that be? Well, we have this cognitive uh, element that comes into play when we have a lot of choices where it's hard for us to, or this is the speculation anyway, it's hard for us to evaluate. You know, when we make a choice, we later on will evaluate that choice. So if there are two choices it, and, you know, two different options and we choose one, Right afterwards, we're pretty sure we got the best pair of jeans that are for us. But when there are 30 choices, especially if you don't have the ability to try on all 30, when you make a choice, you're not sure if you got the best one. 
because it's hard to differentiate when you're trying on 20 different pairs. And there were 10 different pairs of jeans that weren't at the store that you're at and were at this other store that you can't get to because it's across town and you don't have time to go there. And so you walk away with 30 choices from 30 choices making a choice. You're probably choosing a better pair of jeans for you because you have more choices and yet you're less satisfied. So I don't know the research if they have, if this applies, but it seems possible that that could uh, you know, deteriorate one satisfaction in dating when you have dating apps because there are so many choices. Before dating apps, you just had to randomly run into someone that just happened. This is another, this is a pro to dating apps, by the way. So, so the downside to a dating app is too many choices that can cause dissatisfaction and can cause lead, can lead to people uh, breaking up with someone because it's like, well, what if someone is even better out there? You know, and I think that's a known phenomenon that people will talk about anecdotally with dating apps. A pro to dating apps is that before there were dating apps, you had to randomly run into someone who, you know, so you're, you're at a party and you see someone that you're attracted to. There are so many things you don't know. And of course, these things still happen because it's not like people don't meet these ways. But uh, you don't know if they're single. You don't know if you don't know their sexual orientation. You don't necessarily even know their gender. You don't know if they're looking for a relationship. You don't, you don't know anything. But with a dating app, you know that. So uh, with dating apps, it definitely makes dating easier in a lot of ways and uh, eliminates a lot of the kind of awkwardness of walking up to someone and being like, hey, how's it going? And then that person's like, you know, leave, creep. And that's another part of it. It's like you could see someone and they might be single, they might be looking for someone, but you don't know if they would like someone like you. <laughs> Whereas with dating apps, at least there's some indication that that person might actually like you. There's a, there's a beginning there anyway. So there, that's a huge pro to dating apps. Another element that's different now with dating apps is you have to be really photogenic. You know, uh, people look differently in 3D than they look in pictures. And with dating apps, if you're photogenic, you're going to get a lot of attention. And if you're not very photogenic, then you're really not, which is another element of dating apps is that if you're a photogenic woman and you're heterosexual, you're going to get a lot of attention. <laughs> and uh, there's also sort of age issues that pop up with dating apps, right? Like if you are a 55-year-old heterosexual guy, uh, uh, it's common for people like that to limit their range on dating apps to, to, to much younger. Whereas in before dating apps, it might have been harder for an older person to even come into contact with people that were younger. Anyway, this is just all me just making stuff up. I'm not really, really not quite sure. So when I hear about, and, and we've had dating apps for a long time now, right? For you know, they've been in full swing for 20 years now. And what I'll what I'll say is that if you're dating, it's tough. It's tough to date. There are there are difficulties. There's demoralization. You can. Uh, date lots of different people and just find that nothing ever works out. You finally find someone that you like and they don't like you or there's just something terrible about them, like they're married or something. And dating can be extremely hard. It can be very demoralizing. It can be very difficult, particularly if you have traumas, if you have attachment injuries that crop up and are triggered by your partners or, you know, by dating, this sort of thing. 
it's very time consuming and it can be tough and I'm not going to lie. Uh, we, all the rom-coms make it look so easy, but when you actually ask people in the trenches dating, it's tough and it's, it's not all fun and games and it's, um, it can be really, really hard. It can be really, really, really hard. Having said that, dating apps for me and my gauge on how things are going uh, isn't to blame for how difficult things are. Uh, I think that it's just a tool. It can be utilized in a way that th- things will go well for you and it can be a source of a lot of pain in the same way that dating was before there were dating apps. Um, but as I said, I, I think that there is a, a potential a problematic aspect of dating apps in that there's too many uh, there's too many options. But I will say anecdotally also, I have met a lot of people who are currently married to someone that they met on a dating app and did not experience that feeling of uh, you know wanting to go back to the dating app and and uh, you know start swiping right and left again. Um, because I think that the human desire to find a companion overrides a lot of the other things that dating apps might be enticing of. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a rambling (laughs) response to that. Next question. Uh, do you agree that everything worth doing is hard and scary? End of question. Yeah. So this is an off, this is a, a frequent proverb, if you will, that, you know, anything that's worth doing is it's hard. And if it were easy, it wouldn't be worth doing. Uh, sometimes that's true. And sometimes that's very much not true. You know, like walking the dogs with my wife is extremely easy. It's not hard. It's not scary. And it's definitely worth doing. <laughs> okay. Uh, however, many things are difficult and are worth doing. You know, like this podcast is actually kind of hard for me. It's, it's, sort of at the edge of my ability sometimes. And I, uh, like, I think Piaget talked about this with children. I think it actually extends into adulthood for us that we are often in the zone and in the flow and perhaps the most satisfied and the least bored when we're right at the edge of our abilities. It's sort of like with artists who want to like, well, like with music for me, this is a thing that I can talk about with my art, with music, is that when I'm performing, uh, the okay, listen. <laughs> so, so there's a sort of life cycle of a song for me in terms of I will start writing it and it will usually be very inspirational in the beginning. And, and as I'm exploring the beginning f- sort of form of the song, it's really all I want to do is play it. I want to play it over and over and over again. And this is, this is either by myself or with you know bandmates. We'll, we'll just play it over and over and over again because it's just so satisfying. But if you heard us playing it, it would sound like crap because we don't really know what we're doing it. We're at the edge of our abilities, but it's very fun for us, but it's not really ready for the stage. Then there's this next phase you go into where you start to kind of refine the the song. This is also fun because you're, you're trying to, you know, find you're you're tweaking things. You're trying to improve it from an eighty percent song to like a ninety-five percent song, and that can still be fun, but it's not as euphoric as that beginning phase. 
Then you enter the phase where you finalize the song, and now you have to perfect the performance of it. This can also be fun because, particularly if it's a hard, hardish song to play, you're, I'm still enjoying it because it's a craft. It's a you know a skill that I have to master to play the song well. You know, breathing stops and how to play the guitar at the same time. This kind of thing. Then you get to this phase where you've You've written the song, it's all finalized, and you're very good at performing it live. In this phase, it's not as fun. <laughs> but this is the phase when you should be on stage, because this is the stage when you're the most presentable and you're the most natural. And this phase can actually be kind of boring. And this is why a lot of bands will disappoint me when I go see them, like Depeche Mode, and they play a lot of new stuff. Because I'm guessing to them, playing the old stuff is boring to them. It wasn't boring always to them, but it's boring now because they've been playing that song for 30 years. So I think that um, the proverb of anything worth doing is difficult is kind of related to that. that uh, and it's also a proverb that I think is directed at trying to help people to accept the difficulty of things that are worth doing. Like a marriage, for example, to have a long-lasting, satisfactory marriage, it's 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 difficult. It's work, and but it's worth it, right? So, uh, big things like cultivating a long-lasting friendship, it's not always fun and games. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you have to put effort. Sometimes you have to take the good with the bad. Sometimes you have to ask for forgiveness or or provide forgiveness, and that can be difficult. And it's worth it. So I think the proverb applies to some things, but not all things. All right. This next email is from Upper Tier Patron Mitch from Antioch University, Seattle, where I teach. I, I don't believe I've met you, Mitch. Uh, I'm going to uh, break this up into a bunch of different little questions. Uh, Mitch asks, is pathological lying a clinical term? Uh, the answer to that is yes. It is a, a clinical term in that we will use it in the clinical literature and it's you know well documented and defined and researched. There are various different definitions of it. There, you know we don't really have a DSM definition of pathological lying that we all point to, but um, we do have uh, it as a as a construct that we will utilize. If so, what distinguish it? What distinguishes it from delusions and regular lying? Uh, well, what distinguishes pathological lying? is that it's compulsive and self-destructive. Compulsive meaning that the person almost has no control over it, in a sense. It's, it's this knee-jerk reaction of lying. And they, uh, people who suffer from pathological lying will often talk about how they didn't intend on lying, but they just did anyway. It was like just the lie just kind of flew out of their mouth. Or it's compulsive in that it's emotionally extremely difficult for them to tell the truth and to not lie. And it's self-destructive in that pathological liars always have a self-destructive element to it, meaning that when they lie, it uh, at least a good portion of the time, it's detected very quickly, and they experience negative consequences because of it. So that it's distinguished from regular lying in that you could have someone that is just really good at lying a lot, but they lie when it serves them, you know, like say you're a, I don't know, a car salesman and you're a terrible person 
and you know that half the cars on your lot are used cars that are going to fall apart, but you lie to your customer because you want to make money. But you're but you also will refrain from lying. You know, say a customer comes up to the car and looks under the hood and says, "Huh, I see that the you know some of these belts are old; they need to be replaced." The pathologic the the regular liar will say, yep, that's true. Those those do need to be replaced. But the rest of the car is in pristine condition, even though it's not. Because the car salesman, who's a regular liar, understands that they can't lie about the belts because if they lie about the belts, the customer will leave because the customer is looking at the belts and seeing that they are worn and need to be replaced. The pathological liar will hear that. You know, the customer says, oh, it looks like some of these belts are a little worn, a little little old, has some cracks in them, looks like they need to be replaced. The pathological liar is, will say, no, they're not. Those, th- those are perfectly fine. Uh, belts can have those kinds of wear and tear, and they'll be totally fine. Even though the salesperson understands that the customer will know that that is a lie, that is a pathological liar. Pathological liars will lie so badly or so often or in situ- you know, I, I've worked with many pathological liars. They, they would lie about anything. It was it was really sad to see. They would lie right to your face about things that were obviously lies. And so it wasn't very self-serving. So so regular lying is done usually at least with the uh, hope that you're going to get away with it. Pathological liars are they don't really th- have the time or the personality structure to even consider am I going to get away with this. So it's it's very compulsive and it's it's very self-destructive. But you ask, you know, what distinguishes it from delusions? Well, you know, delusions people believe. You know, when someone is having a delusion that they're being spied on by the FBI, uh, they're not lying. <laughs> you know, they, they believe it. You also ask, do people grow out of it by a certain age? Um, generally speaking, uh, we don't know. Uh, you have to take case-by-case case basis. Certainly some people do. You can have... Someone who goes, I've seen this before, where you'll have a kid or even a young adult who will go through a pathological lying phase, and then they just grow out of it naturally. Uh, But, of course, we have other people who are pathological liars their entire lives. You ask, is it considered diagnostically useful when assessing for cluster B personality disorders or any other condition? Uh, The answer is yes, absolutely. If someone suffers and you assess them with pathological, pathological lying, it absolutely is usually part of a, another condition. You, the, the, the first, if I found someone that was a pathological liar, the very first thing that I would look for, because this is the, the usual cause that I would see in my practice anecdotally, was major attachment disruptions early in life. So there would be a kid who was in Korea as a orphan and was in an institution and had no... Uh, ongoing caregiver for the first year of their life. So they had, you know, 30 different nurses taking care of them. And for the first 12, 18 months of their life, no secure attachment. And they're now 15 years old, having been adopted. And they have a lot of pathological lying. I saw this a lot. I saw kids that had these kinds of um, attachment developmental windows that were just not capitalized on, and neuronally they just lack a certain level of empathy that results in lying and just not caring about the fact that they're lying. 
So I would see that. Another uh, indication possibly is psychopathy, obviously. Uh, but that's pretty rare. Psychopaths are pretty rare. There's also uh, pathological liars uh, can suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. When you are narcissistic, you require a constant narcissistic supply for fear of facing the abyss that is within your personality. And one of the ways that you can obtain a constant flow of narcissistic supply is to lie very, very often. And because people with personality disorders are over-adjusting for problems and they are suffering from a huge personality problem that is um, causing them a lot of problems, they will lie even when uh, it's it's likely that someone will figure it out. People, There's different flavors of narcissistic personality, but one of them is to brag a lot, right? I mean, they always tend to promote positive ideas of themselves. But sometimes people with narcissistic personality disorder will just sort of ham-fistedly just lie. They'll just be like, I have $5 million. Um, I have 10 motorcycles. I have flown around the world in my own jet when none of those things happened. But they're in a constant hope that people will see them as superior and to prop up a fantasy that they are superior, that they either are unsophisticated to come up with real reasons to make them superior or at least legitimate reasons that, uh, and instead are just ham-fistedly making crap up. And I've treated people like that before. Also, people suffering from certain traumas, complex PTSD, this kind of thing. It's not indicative of complex PTSD, but uh, it there is a presentation of a certain flavor of complex PTSD or even borderline where lying can absolutely happen. Um, <clears throat> but uh, if I came across a pathological liar, I would look more at major attachment disruption, psychopathy, and narcissism. Um, and there are other possibilities. You also ask, how is lying differentiated from the confabulation that people with delusions and other thought disorders experience? Well, like I said before, you know, delusions and thought disorders, uh, they're not lying that they believe, you know, when they say the FBI is after them, they believe it. You also ask, what about people who are ostensibly neurotypical, but who believe their own lies? So I believe what you're talking about here is people with defense mechanisms such as denial. So when we describe someone who's believing their own lies, it usually is referring to someone who needs to believe their own lies because to not believe their own lies is to face something that is very, very difficult for them, you know, such as the narcissistic person propping up the fantasy that they're superior because they are in a constant need to distract themselves from their firm belief that they are the most inferior person on the planet and unlovable. Uh, but other reasons why we might believe our own lies is um, if what would be another lie that people would believe in? Well, they might believe that everything's going to work out like global warming or climate change isn't really a thing. And when they really face it, they know that they're lying to themselves, but they are f afraid of the future or they don't know how to get out of the climate change or they don't want to make the sacrifices thereof. And so they will lie to themselves or lie to others that climate change isn't real and they end up believing it. And that's, you know, it's out of desperation, but that's, that's different from pathological lying. You also ask, and also FYI, shyster and shysty are some, so um, chiming in here, sometimes, so lately I've been talking, of, maybe in the lying episode, I was talking about shysters, and 
I don't know, you know, there are certain words that you start using and you're like, you're thinking, have I ever even said this word before in my life? But anyway, uh, what Mitch is saying is that shyster is sometimes considered anti-Semitic, which I had no idea. Uh, similar to the word gypsy, you know, the word um, being gypped is associated with the word gypsy, which so, you know, and I've known that for a while. I've been trying not to use the word gypped um, because of the association with um, racism against, you know, people that associate themselves with the gypsy label or Indian giver, you know, these kinds of terms I have been absolutely avoiding. I did not know that shyster was associated uh, with with an anti-Semitic slur. I had no idea. I, I, so I've been not using that word anymore. And if I hurt anyone's feelings by using that word, I am terribly sorry. I The only thing I can say is I was just completely ignorant that that was a word that had that history. That's, that's truly awful. All right, let's end with this question from anonymous upper tier patron from Sydney. They write, what advice would you give to someone looking to change careers to become a therapist? I'm a mid-career tech professional, but I consistently feel this need to help people, and I think that psychology might be the path. I know there are normal things like talk to others in the profession, try to learn some things, take short courses to explore the material, but what else would you recommend as someone who has seen so many therapists begin their careers? End of email. Yeah, uh, this is a great question. Because I don't know how many well, – I have a lot of things I can say because I've seen a lot of things. The first thing I'll say is anecdotal, anecdotally, not many people who choose to become a therapist regret it. I've seen it a few times. I actually – you know, I don't know if you listened to my, the episodes with me and Bob, but me and Bob in graduate school, we are part of a, a four-person clique, if you will. And it was you know, two women, two men, me and Bob and two others. And – one of the women actually right after graduation decided she didn't want to be a therapist, even though she had this master's degree and she actually started working for child protective services. And then I think she might've married rich. <laughs> actually, no, that's, that's a terrible thing to say. Um, I don't know what her career was after that. Uh, I'm still friends with her, but uh, on Facebook and she looks like she's enjoying herself that was many years ago. Anyway, point is, is that, um, you know, one out of four of us and maybe even the other woman, I, I, I actually reconnected with her. I don't know what she's doing right now. I mean, obviously me and Bob are still therapists, so <laughs> I'm not making my point very well. I've trained a lot of therapists and of the people that I've trained, I can't think of a single student who didn't go on to become a therapist and love it after graduation. So... You know, being a deciding to become a therapist is kind of a scary thing because uh, you can't try on the job until you are in graduate school and at internship, right? So you can't uh, uh, practice and say, like, you know, I wonder what it feels like to be a therapist. You can't do that. Uh, and just talking with your friends is a completely different animal than actually having a client come into your office and say, please help me with these things. So, it's a job that you won't have an opportunity to try on for size until you've already spent years and tens of thousands of dollars and um, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, to get there. So uh, having said that, the vast majority of people that I've worked with did not regret it once they got to that point. 
the other th- the other thing I would ask yourself, anonymous up to your patron from Sydney, is: Are you okay earning low money for many years and having a lot of student debt? Uh, early career, and actually, <laughs> when I was being interviewed for the program at Antioch uh, when I was twenty four years old, my future mentor, uh, Paul David was interviewing me and he he said this to me because I was working in business and I, I was earning not a wonderful living but I don't know for my age I was I was earning okay as a market researcher and he told me he said uh, you know do you understand that therapists don't earn that much money and that you're, you're gonna be in a lot of debt and is that okay with you now it turns out that that wasn't the case I mean once I graduated with my master's, I very quickly went into private practice and was actually earning quite a bit of money um, not long after graduation. But but it w- but right after graduation, I wasn't earning that much money. And if I hadn't busted my ass and uh, worked really, really hard and literally worked 70 hours a week to get my practice off the ground, I'd still be at that place where I'd be working in an agency for pretty low money. So it's not uncommon for therapists to, to, it, to earn like a mid-level... Um, uh, you know, lower middle class kind of uh, income. So, uh, so that's a question you have to ask yourself because because for some people, you know, right now, anonymous up to your patron from Sydney, you are a mid career tech professional. I'm guessing you're earning a lot of money, and you'll go to graduate school, and in all likelihood, right after graduate school, you'll be earning very little money compared to what you're earning right now. And if that's okay with you, then you know it's just another answer in the column of, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, the other question to ask yourself is, can you tolerate graduate school? Because graduate school is no joke. It's a pain in the butt. <laughs> it's a thing. And particularly in our field, I, I don't know about in Sydney, but in Seattle, you know, it's typical to go through a graduate program and have to face a lot of your demons publicly in front of your fellow students and, and professors and stuff. So, uh, you can't just like sit back and learn. You have to be emotionally actively involved, particularly when we start talking about social justice issues. You really have to face your privilege. Uh, the other question I would ask is, have you considered other jobs that involve helping people? You know, maybe there's another job that would fit better with what you're looking for in a career that isn't a therapist because, you know, there's a lot of jobs that help people. Um, the other question I would ask you and this is maybe the best question to ask yourself is, do you really want to sit and listen for hours and hours to people that you don't know that well? Is this already a thing that you do? This is actually really key because of the people that I have found that uh, go to graduate school uh, or are thinking about going to graduate school, um, occasionally I'll run into people that they seem to be – they they want they like all the other things that a therapy job entails. They they like the prestige. They like the fact that it involves getting a graduate degree. They like the fact that it involves psychology and trying to figure people out. They like the idea of having their own office and their own you know um, making their own schedule or you know all the various different accoutrements to being a therapist. But when it comes down to actually listening to people that you don't know that well. And I say people you don't know that well because, you know, your clients, you'll get to know them, but, you know, they're not your friends. These are people that you know, but not know, no, you know, they're not, they're not your family members. And uh, what I find is that 
the quintessential therapist loves listening to people that they don't know that well. Uh, they love listening to anyone, but but they will they'll listen and and they feel a great amount of fulfillment and meaning and purpose by conveying empathy to another person. And uh, and it's not there's not a lot of activity involved in that, you know, because I find that some people are like, oh, I want to be a therapist because I want to like tinker with people's minds and I want to learn about I want to be an investigator of people's minds and. That's not 95% of therapy is not that. I mean, some of it is. In couples therapy, there's a little bit more of that. But with sort of bread and butter therapy, you know, individual therapy, it's a lot of you just sitting there listening, absorbing, being attentive, being engaged, being in their world. And if that appeals to you, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I do that with everyone around me. I can't wait to, to listen and, and convey empathy to my clients, then, you know, it's another uh, tick in the column of go for it. But if you're, if you're a little skeptical of that, you're like, well, you know, I'm not the best listener. <laughs> I really love psychology, but yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really dying to just listen to people all day. Cause it's hours and hours and hours of listening and listening and listening. And for most therapists, they love that. But if that's if you're not into that, then it's an indication that you should probably pick some other profession to meet your needs. But if that is something you like, my goodness, you probably should be a therapist. The world needs more of you. <laughs> All right, everyone out there, that does it for that. Take care of yourself. Take care of others and listen to others because you deserve it. You really, really do. 